This is episode 59 of the March of History. Today we head back to the political circus that is ancient Rome. And to get started, let's head back in time a little to 54 BCE. And to give you some context of this year, this is the same year that Caesar made his second expedition to Britain, and the same year that his officers, Sabinus and Cotta, were ambushed and their legions destroyed in the forests of Gaul. Now that year, 54 BCE in Rome, Cato is elected to the praetorship. Now this is the highest Cato will ever rise on the Cursus Honorum. Cato is too much of an idealist to ever really attain the ultimate prize, the consulship. To become consul, you need to hand out bribes and make people like you. And Cato refuses to do either of these things. In fact, when Cato later campaigns for consul in the year 51 BCE, he declares that he will do nothing at all to win the favor of the electorate. Unsurprisingly, this tactic doesn't go down well with the populace, and Cato loses that election. But that is in the future. Getting back to 54 BC and Cato's praetorship, Plutarch says that Cato disgraced and diminished the office of praetor by his strange behavior. You see, Cato often shows up to court without shoes and sits down on the bench to judge trial cases without undergarments on. Now, he would have been wearing a toga, so you can imagine that that is a big issue, and it's unclear if the undergarments means no shirt under the toga or no undergarments, as we would think of them. Either way, Plutarch says that he's doing stuff like this even for very prestigious cases involving the most important people in the Republic. You can imagine what kind of stir that would cause today if in the U.S. a senator or a judge was showing up to trials without shoes on and without undergarments in a very revealing position to the crowd. (laughs) That would cause quite a stir among the people of the U.S., and it did in Rome as well. Apparently, it was also said that Cato used to drink wine after breakfast and then go about his public business either buzzed or drunk. But Plutarch mentions all this and then goes on to say that it wasn't true, which makes you wonder why he bothers to mention it. That's like going to your neighbor and saying, oh, did you hear so-and-so is cheating on their spouse? And you say, no, really? And they go, oh, no, but it's not true. Don't don't believe any of it. (laughs) You know, once you say it, the seed is planted. Anyway... As always, you do have to admire how little Cato seems to care about what people think of him. And in that vein, Cato is not in the praetorship to make friends with anyone. Cato immediately begins trying to uproot the vast amount of corruption that has taken hold in the Roman Republic. The issue is that at this point, corruption is the basically the way of the Roman Republic. It's almost the way the Republic functions. It's ubiquitous in Roman elections. So all of the people running for office in Rome during Cato's praetorship find Cato's war on corruption to be utterly obnoxious. And just as importantly, maybe even more importantly, the average citizen finds Cato's stance against corruption to be just as obnoxious. That may seem confusing at first, who would be pro-corruption in politics, 
But by this point in the Republic, it is very common for politicians to hand out bribes to the populace to buy their votes and to get them to influence others around them. And the people of Rome are counting on these bribes. They're accustomed to them. They're part of their income. They're factoring these bribes into their annual income. Then along comes Cato and he starts to crack down on this whole system. And so at one point, the Roman mob becomes so angry that they even attack Cato, insult him, and throw rocks at him. But Cato stays the course. Now, like I said, it's not just the populace of Rome that's angry at Cato, it's also powerful men, too. And one of these men is Pompey Magnus. You see, Cato is causing a lot of inconvenience for Pompey, so Pompey gets Clodius to start going after Cato. That's right. Clodius, the leader of the street gangs of Rome, is now working with Pompey. You may remember in the past, Clodius absolutely despised Pompey, even stole his prince at one point. But now, Clodius is either working with or for Pompey. He is always fickle, happy to switch sides when it is convenient for him. So Clodius right away starts claiming that Cato stole most of the treasure of Cyprus and that Cato was just mad at Pompey that Pompey had snubbed his daughter for marriage. Now, none of this is true. After all, it had been Cato who had said no to Pompey's offer of marriage to his daughter, not the other way around. But none of that stops Clodius from just making up whatever he likes. Clodius was way ahead of his time when it comes to fake news. Eventually, Cato gets fed up with this sort of harassment and accuses Pompey of stirring up an anarchy to gain for himself a monarchy. So as you can see, Clodius is still up to all of his old tricks. He's still running the streets of Rome with gangs and causing chaos in Rome. And despite Cato's attempts to clean up the election process, bribery still remains rampant in Rome. In the election for the consulship of the following year, 53 BC, that is the same year that Crassus dies, a case of bribery is uncovered that, according to historian Adrian Goldsworthy, is staggering, even by the standards of the Roman Republic. Two of the candidates had joined together and offered a bribe of 10 million sestercii to the century of the first class to vote. In other words, the citizens whose votes mattered the most in the election. On top of this, another 3 million sestercii bribe was offered to the current consuls who would be overseeing the election. And Caesar and Pompey are both indirectly implicated in this scandal, and it's not a great look for them. And so, because of this massive amount of corruption... Elections are delayed to the point where they aren't even held in 54 BC. And when any republic can't hold elections due to corruption and instability, that is a very bad sign for the health of the republic. 53 BC then rolls around and still no elections have been held. This means that there are no magistrates elected for 53 BC, which essentially means there is no functioning government. Instead, temporary magistrates known as interreges have been appointed for a period of five days each. These interreges are just a temporary office to oversee the next election since there are no consuls. 
Typically, the consul for the current year would oversee the election for the consuls and the rest of the positions for the next year. But since the next year has already come and the old consuls have already stepped down, there is nobody to run the election. So that's why they choose these interregis to do this. And ideally, you'd have maybe a few interregis in the beginning of the year. And these interregis would then hold the elections, new magistrates would be put into office, and everything would get back to normal. But due to the instability, corruption, and fighting in Rome at this period, the elections keep getting delayed, and soon months are passing by without elections. Cicero even jokes in a letter that he would advise all defendants to ask for two adjournments. The joke being that by the end of these two adjournments, there would be a new interrex, and then the defendant could just ask the new interrex for another two adjournments, thus perpetually putting off their trial. Now, of course, instability also breeds opportunity, and eventually a tribune comes forward and proposes that Pompey should be made dictator of the Roman Republic to resolve all of these issues. Cato and his followers are furious at this. They go ballistic. They launch an attack on the tribune and almost manage to get him thrown out of office altogether. Meanwhile, Pompey's friends are embarrassed and apologetic on his behalf. Pompey's too high and mighty to be embarrassed or apologetic, but his friends are on his behalf. And they say that Pompey never desired or wanted the dictatorship. They don't know why this guy came forward and proposed that. Now, the ancient sources seem to say that this was utter nonsense, that Pompey really did want the dictatorship and was intentionally letting Rome fall into chaos to bring about this end, to bring about a situation where the Romans would have to choose him as dictator to resolve all their issues. In the end, the Senate does not make Pompey dictator, but they do ask Pompey to supervise the elections. And initially, Cato is against this, saying that the laws ought not seek protection from Pompey, but Pompey from the laws. Eventually, though, with the elections still delayed and no end in sight to the chaos, Cato relents. And finally, with Pompey's supervision, the elections are held in the summer of 53 BC to elect the magistrates of 53 BC. Of course, this means that their elected term is more than halfway over by the time they come into office. And by this time, it's time to start looking at the elections for the next year, 52 BC. The candidates for this election are as corrupt as ever and include the likes of Clodius, who is running for Praetor, and his rival in gang warfare, Milo, who is running for Consul. As you would imagine... Having these two characters as candidates in the election only causes the straight violence and gang warfare to ramp up. And remember, there is no police force in ancient Rome. There's no one there to combat these gangs. They're just running wild in the streets. And of course, Clodius is in the thick of the drama in Rome as always. And I'm not just talking about the drama of the, the gang warfare going on. Clodius has drama of a more personal nature as well. At one point, probably during the same period, Clodius seems to have had a falling out with his friend Mark Antony. And when two such combustible personalities as Mark Antony and Clodius have a falling out, it's not going to just end in harsh words. 
According to Clodius and Antony's mutual enemy, Cicero, Antony ends up drawing a sword in the forum and chasing Clodius to try to kill him as the Roman crowd looks on. Clodius may have been killed right then and there in the forum in front of a crowd had he not thrown himself up the stairs of a bookseller's shop and locked the door behind him to keep Antony out. And so the drama in Rome continues, the gang warfare escalates, corruption, murders, assassinations, all are becoming routine in Rome. And because of all this, the elections for 52 BC, normally held in the previous year, 53 BC, are also delayed. This is the third time this has happened in four years. And when this happens... Clodius withdraws from the election race altogether, according to his enemy Cicero, because Clodius wanted a full year as praetor, not a partial year, and because he didn't want to be praetor the same year that Milo was above him as consul. He felt that Milo would restrict his power and his aims, which Cicero, his enemy, says is to topple the government. But of course, Cicero would say that. Now, as hot as things are in Rome right now, as hot as they've been for the past few years of gang warfare in Rome, this next part in our story is the point where the city of Rome is about to move out of the frying pan and into the fire. One day in January of 52 BC, Clodius is traveling back to Rome on the Appian Way from some business that he had outside of Rome. Clodius is on horseback, and with him he has three friends and about 30 slaves armed with swords. At the same time, also traveling on the Appian Way, on his way out of Rome, is Milo. Milo is in a carriage with his wife Fausta, who, just by the way, is the dictator Sola's daughter, and along with them is a friend of theirs, and with those three they have a host of slaves, many more than Clodius has with him, and they have some gladiators mixed in. And two of the gladiators are even famous gladiators in Rome. Now as these two parties spot each other in the distance and then recognize each other, you can imagine that both sides tense up. But surprisingly, the two gang leaders pass each other by without incident, only giving each other suspicious looks. But behind them... Their entire entourages have to also pass by each other too. And for the most part, this goes without incident. Until Clodius' group reaches the end of Milo's group, where the two famous gladiators are. These gladiators start a fight with Clodius' slaves. Clodius then turns back and gives a threatening look at the group. And that, the threatening look, is all the excuse the gladiators need. One of them takes a javelin and launches it at Clodius, and Clodius is hit and badly wounded. Another account by Appian has Clodius being stabbed with a dagger in the back. However it happened, Clodius is badly wounded, and a battle breaks out among the two groups, with both sides turning back to join into the fray. Clodius, bleeding profusely, is carried away from the fight by his side to a nearby tavern. And at this point, Milo has a decision to make. Now, we can't know for certain, but it would seem that it was never Milo's intention to get into this fight or to wound Clodius. 
After all, what man in ancient Rome would bring his wife to a gang battle and put her life at risk? But now that Clodius has been wounded, what's done is done. And Milo knows that if Clodius recovers, Milo and his family will have to spend the rest of their lives looking over their shoulders for Clodius' vengeance. After all, Clodius is famous for his nursing of vendettas. That seems to be his main motivation in life. So Milo can let Clodius live and always be looking over his shoulder. Or... Milo can finish the job, here and now. And sure, he'll be put on trial for this, but Milo has powerful friends, and Rome is a very corrupt city. And besides, if Clodius survives, Milo may still be put on trial, but this time with a star witness, Clodius. And even if found guilty, the worst that will probably happen to Milo is exile. So Milo thinks all of this over very quickly... And in the end, decides that dead men don't bite. And it's better to risk exile than Clodius' retribution. Milo gives the orders to his men and they follow Clodius into the tavern and drag him, still bleeding, onto the Appian Way. There, on the Appian Way, with a shrine to the Bonadilla looking on, the good goddess whose festival Clodius had profaned all those years ago by dressing as a woman and sneaking into Julius Caesar's house to have an affair with his wife? In front of that shrine, the Bonadilla, Clodius is put to death. And so finally, all these years later, the Bonadilla, the good goddess revered by the women of Rome, has her vengeance on the most sacrilegious of men, Clodius. After killing and wounding most of Clodius' slaves, Milo and his retinue then leave Clodius' corpse on the Via Appia and continue on their way. And it's hard to feel too bad for Clodius. After all, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. Or maybe it would be better to say, in Clodius' case, if you live by gang warfare, you will die by gang warfare. Now, sometime later, a Roman senator returning to Rome from the countryside comes across the body of Clodius on the Appian Way. And recognizing the now dead Clodius, the senator has his men put the body in his litter and they carry it to Rome. The senator himself turns back the way he had came because he already knows what this revelation is going to do to Rome, and he wants no part of the chaos that's to come. Clodius' body is first brought to the courtyard in front of his house. There, his devoted wife, Fulvia, who Cicero says was rarely away from his side, sees his body and is inconsolable. The next morning, a crowd made up of the lowest echelons of Roman society gathers at Clodius and Fulvia's house to see if the news is true. And there, Fulvia starts showing them all the wounds on Clodius' body. And this, combined with her uncontrolled lamenting, we are told, stokes the anger of the lower echelons of Roman society, who had long been supporters of Clodius. Some tribunes who were allies of Clodius's when he was living then incite the crowd to carry his body down to the forum and to put it on the rostra where all can see his body. 
So Clodius' body is then carried naked except for his sandals down to the rostra, and there, stoked by fiery speeches, the crowd's anger grows into a frenzy, and they carry Clodius' body into the Senate house and lay it down there. Then, perhaps in an act of defiance or retribution against the Senate, the mob takes the benches in the Senate house and starts piling them up around Clodius' body, and to these they add tables and books, creating a sort of makeshift funeral pyre in the Senate house. The pile of flammable objects is lit, and as it burns, it spreads. Soon the whole Senate house is burning. It's almost as if Clodius is striking one last blow at the established order from the grave. More buildings next to the Senate House soon catch fire. Chaos sweeps through Rome. Violent riots erupt. Milo and some of the other senators' houses are attacked before the mobs are driven off by volleys of arrows. The mob then takes the consular fasces to the gardens of Pompey and hails him first as consul and then as dictator. Milo returns to Rome the same night the Senate House is burning, and it's said that Milo was more angry about the homage being paid to Clodius than fearful of being brought to trial. And when Milo tries to get ahead of any legal repercussions for murdering Clodius by holding a sort of fake trial in which everyone involved in the trial, including the prosecution, is bribed by Milo and just acting a part, Many of the lowest members of Roman society go berserk and burst into the forum, led by most of the tribunes, weapons in hand, and just start killing people. Milo manages to escape this massacre disguised as a slave, but soon the mob stops searching for Milo and his allies and just starts killing anyone they come into contact with, especially people who look rich. That's right, the poor and the slaves of Rome are now killing the rich. And as often happens in protests and riots, some portion of the crowd uses the chaos to loot at will. These people are not politically motivated like the rest, they are just using it as an excuse to gain for themselves material possessions. They are running around Rome, storming private houses and looting them under the pretext of searching for Milo and his allies. You can just imagine them bursting into wealthy homes, yelling, Where's Milo? We're looking for Milo. Well, maybe he's in that box of jewels. I better take it with me to be sure. They go around the city, stoning, burning, and spreading violence. For years, the lowliest in Rome have had their needs ignored and their champions killed by the aristocracy, and they are fed up with it. This is generations of pent-up rage and poverty being vented all at once. And amidst this chaotic violence and looting, the very reactionary Roman Senate is bound to react. How can they let the burning of the Senate House go unanswered, that symbol of their authority? How can they claim to have authority over Rome when anarchy seems to be reigning? The first thing the Senate does is pass the ultimate decree, roughly the Roman equivalent of martial law. 
They also charged Pompey to take steps to protect the state and to raise troops all over Italy, which Pompey does. And at this point, there are rumors going around Rome that Pompey will be made dictator and that Rome needs one great man to solve all of its problems. And really, these sorts of rumors have been going on for some time now, but they've been heightened with all the recent violence and chaos. So seeing this, the Senate, and yes, even the Optimates, feel that it is now inevitable that Rome has to be put in the hands of one capable man to bring things under order, under control. On top of this, Cato and the Optimates feel that even if they wanted to stop this momentum, they can't. So rather than fighting the inevitable, they intend to steer it. You see, the Senate, and especially the Optimates, are afraid of anyone being made a dictator. And dictator, it's not how we think of it today. Dictator is an official office in the Roman Republic, but it's been tarnished by Sola and his deathless a generation before. And whichever of Rome's great men gets any special power, the Optimates want to make damn sure it isn't Julius Caesar. And just a side note, there is a motion put forward at some point during all this chaos to recall Caesar from Gaul so that he and Pompey can serve as consuls together. And all ten tribunes even support this bill. But in the end, it is Caesar that thanks them but declines, saying that he is needed in Gaul. So in the end, the Optimates come up with a novel solution that avoids Caesar and avoids a dictator. In a meeting of the Senate, Bibulus, the arch-optimate and brother-in-law of Cato, puts forward the idea that Pompey should be appointed, not elected, appointed, sole consul, meaning consul without a colleague. What's more, Cato seconds his proposal, saying that any government is better than none at all. Now, all of this is probably illegal for a couple of reasons. First off, Pompey hasn't been elected, just appointed. That's not legal. Second, there is no president in Rome for a sole consul. Dictator is a legal position used when the republic is in danger and needs the autocratic rule of one man for six months. But sole consul without a partner? That's not a thing. Then there's the fact that Pompey hasn't waited the ten required years between consulships. Add into all of this that Pompey is allowed to keep his two Spanish provinces and the legions that go with them while being sole consul in Rome, which, while I'm no expert on Roman law, hardly seems legal. All of this gives Pompey an incredible amount of power, and Pompey is doing all sorts of unprecedented things with that power and with the consent of Cato and the Optimates. For example... While holding Imperium, Pompey crosses the Pomerium and enters Rome. That's not allowed. That's why Pompey had been hanging just outside of Rome up to this point and wasn't allowed in the city. If you are a general or governor of the provinces, under arms, you cannot enter the city. Pompey crosses the Pomerium, thus entering the city. And he doesn't stop there. Pompey even brings armed soldiers into the city to control the street gangs and to protect the trials that will come later. 
Now, this measure may have been needed to put down the gangs in Rome, but it certainly wasn't legal. So it's ironic to see Cato and the Optimates supporting all of these illegal measures, even as they howl about the illegal actions of Caesar. It seems that when the Optimates decide that it's okay to throw legality to the wind and do what's convenient for them, then anything is allowed. Meanwhile, they're still mad at Caesar. I mean, at this point, it's almost seven years after his consulship, and they still can't forget about it. Meanwhile, Pompey, flushed with success, next marries the widow of young Publius Crassus by the name of Cornelia. Cornelia is the woman that Plutarch says was young, beautiful, well-versed in literature, in playing the lyre, and in geometry, and had been accustomed to listen to philosophical discourses with profit, as, as Plutarch says. Cornelia is also much too young for Pompey, and many in Rome think it is scandalous that she's a better match in age for his son than for him. But Julius Caesar doesn't care too much about any of this. What Caesar cares about is who Cornelius' father is. Cornelius' father is a man with one of the longest Roman names I've ever seen. His name is Quintus Caecilius Metellus Pius Scipio Nasica. For short, we'll simply call him Metellus Scipio. Metellus Scipio is as aristocratic as his name is long. And more importantly, to Caesar, he's an optimate. This means that Pompey has officially rebuffed Caesar's attempts to form a new marriage alliance with him and has instead declared himself firmly on the side of the Optimates. And why not? After all, it was the Optimates that had given him such unprecedented powers. Now, with all of this happening, can you begin to see how the seeds of civil war have been planted? The precarious balance of power between Pompey and Caesar has been altered. Pompey is virtual ruler of Rome with legions in Spain, and he's busy raising new legions all over Italy. Meanwhile, he has officially allied himself with a group that despises Julius Caesar, and who almost exists to see Caesar's destruction. What could possibly go wrong here for Rome? In our next episode, we will leave Rome behind and head back to Julius Caesar in Gaul. These dramatic events in Rome have huge reverberations and will even influence events in Gaul where a young man named Vercingetorix is about to lead the greatest revolt against Caesar that will take place during the entirety of the Gallic Wars. On another note, you may have noticed that this episode sounded a bit different, Hopefully you noticed an improvement in the audio quality. Well, that is because I'm recording it on a brand new upgraded mic I was able to purchase, courtesy of your generous Patreon and PayPal contributions. Your contributions to the March of History have made a difference and have been put to good use. Now, full disclosure, I did briefly consider squandering the money you've given me on Blackjack in Atlantic City, but on further reflection, I thought it would be more prudent to buy a mic to upgrade our podcast sound quality. Anyway, I just want to say thank you to all of those who have contributed to help the March of History grow. And let me just add that we are just getting started. 
And if you would like to contribute to the March of Histories Patreon or PayPal, the links are both in the summary of every episode, and every dollar counts. No contribution is too small. Now, one last thing before we end today's episode, we do have an Apple Podcast Store five-star review to read. This one is read by the username C-A-L-B-R-X-W-N. He's from Yorkshire, UK, if I'm not mistaken, and he's a musical artist in his own right. You should definitely check out some of his music. You can find it on Spotify or Instagram by searching that username I just read to you. We communicate on Instagram a lot, me and him, and he's a great guy, a great supporter of the podcast. But he says in his review, history made easy and entertaining. And he goes on to say, I'm writing this review after binging all 46 episodes on Spotify in two months. And then a little emoji with the head exploding. Trevor does an incredible job at forming each chapter of Roman history into his own short story. Extremely satisfying to listen to when you're doing a 30 to 60 minute activity, running, cooking, etc., would love more people to listen so that he can release episodes more frequently. Well, thank you so much for the wonderful five-star review. I almost blushed to read it about myself. And let me just say our audience is growing with every release, and hopefully I as the host am improving with every release. After all, it was Julius Caesar that once said, experience is the teacher of all things. That is it for episode 59. I will talk to you in episode 60 when Caesar and Vercingetorix finally engage in their titanic struggle for the fate of Gaul.